When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the military, we like to say that um, wars are won by sergeants, not by officers. Right? Yeah, right. So, I had a lot of second lieutenants, I can tell you, and a lot of former uh, na- uh, army captains, marine captains who came to my classes. I tell you, they were, to be honest, totally dependent on their sergeants, particularly mm-hmm. when they started out, you know, because that's the people who knew what was going on. See, but if you don't know how to depend on other people, you're going to be a terrible leader. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We've got a very special guest today, uh, former CEO of Medtronic, which is one of the biggest medical device companies in the world, and current, uh, I, I believe you're a current professor of management practice at uh, Harvard Business. Is that correct? Right. Actually, it's now executive fellow, but it's okay. Same thing. Go ahead. Is, is executive fellow like emeritus, or what? what is that exactly? No, it's more like I'm not full-time now. Oh, I see. Okay. And uh, you've also, um, you're a fellow of ethics at the Harvard Business School as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I've been focused on leadership and values and ethics for a long time. Well, let's get into that. Um, so you've got a book, uh, True North and a, an Emerging, or A Emerging Leader. I, I, I wonder, um, from your perspective, there's a lot of uh, you know opportunity in the business world to do good, and there's also a lot of opportunity to do bad. You know, and we see it on both ends. Um, and sometimes it's not obvious if what you're doing is good or bad on the grand scheme of things. I mean, obvious, there's obvious malice and there's obvious uh, um, altruism. <clears throat> but some of the bigger moves like, uh, you know, for example, Elon Musk works heavily with China and a lot of stuff because they have the only they have the source material for a lot of the stuff he needs to do what he thinks is going to be better for the future of human beings. You know what I mean? A lot of people look at that and say, hey, that's not good human rights abuses, blah, blah, blah in China. But I, you know, it, there's a fine line there. And I wonder from your perspective, because you've worked with quite a few companies in tech and every, everything else. Uh, how do you balance that? Very tricky. I can tell you. Uh, I think, uh, you know, in general, you know, let's take uh, Elon Musk. First of all, you have to say the guy is an absolute brilliant mm-hmm. inventor. And what he did with Tesla, coming out, none of the automobile companies have been able to match that. And uh, and SpaceX, he, he's done some amazing things. Uh, he's getting a little too involved in politics for my, my, my or Twitter for my pleasure. But anyway, with regard to China, yeah, they have a lot of the raw materials we need. We need to find other sources for things we need, and we need to diversify our manufacturing. The one thing we learned in COVID, Dan, is you can't put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. And you're putting your company very much at risk if you just go to the lowest cost. And I think you're seeing a big shift, like semiconductors now, talking to uh, a colleague of mine who's former head of Medtronic, now chairman of Intel, they're going to bring him back to Ohio, put in a $20 billion uh, factory in Ohio. and uh, and But they have to have the raw materials. Big Pharma got caught up with that. And so I think companies, have, frankly, have been caught up in Ukraine. A lot of those materials are in Ukraine, too. And so they're in trouble. So I think you need a diversified manufacturing. 
And uh, I think companies have drifted away from that over the last 30 years, just trying to go to lowest cost. You got to look at total cost. <laughs> it's not just uh, what the raw material cost is, but what's the total cost on logistics and everything else. So I think that's healthy that we're rethinking these things. <clears throat> and I think it'll, it'll help uh, help this country a lot uh, if we can get back to focusing on what's really important. Sure. I mean, that, so uh, a, a lot of folks in, in big business have leaned into globalism over the last couple of decades because, you know, to expand their cut, like the NBA, for example, trying to expand their customer base in China um, and, and, you know, particularly in tech, um, using uh, foreign labor markets and foreign resources to, to build their tech phones or whatever it is. Um, we've, there's got to be, um, <clears throat> well, let me, let me phrase it this way. It seems like that you, you make such a large target at that point that it becomes easier and easier for bad actors to manipulate. You know, like the farther away you are from the decision-making process, you know what I mean? It's, it kind of, to me, it seems a lot like, um, uh, almost like our business federalism, you know, how the United States is set up to have a certain governing dynamic federally, but every other, you know, right and responsibility is uh, uh, sent back to the states to decide, right? Um, and there's a purpose for that. The purpose is to not give a, a centralized government too much power over too many disparate people. And globalism seems to do that quite a bit. And I'm not sure how to pull back from that. I mean, obviously, Intel's building that um, microprocessor plant in uh, Ohio. Um, but even then, is there any chance that the United States is going to start mining lithium domestically? That's probably not going to happen, right? I, I don't even. I'm I don't even know if we have any. I think that's a big issue. I, I, I think we actually have the fifth largest deposits in the world. But oh, we do. Okay, yeah, but, I wasn't aware of that. But, Thank you for. I, I don't think that there's any. I, I don't think we're going to do that, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So you know, talk to me about. You, you, from a business leader perspective, how do you decide what stuff we need to do domestically versus what stuff we need to rely on, you know, allies or, or you know, potentially not allies for? Yeah, these are these are big risks. And particularly after Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, the business people I know are very concerned about China, Taiwan, what's going to happen there. It, it's easier to pull out of the Russian market, to be honest, than the Chinese market, because it's going to be such going to be the largest market in the world. But I, I think one of the issues will... You know, a lot of business leaders, Dan, is that they're not focusing on their people. They're focusing too much on the numbers and sitting in their offices and holding meetings and looking at PowerPoint charts. And they really haven't done enough focus on their people. Now, Medtronic has had been very successful in China, staying below the radar screen, not getting involved in Chinese politics, as have a lot of companies. Uh, but you don't put all your eggs in that basket. I think companies that have great products need to be global. You know, if you have a pharmaceutical drug that's saving people's lives like Johnson Johnson, you need to make it available to people. So this raises all the issues you're raising, and they're never easy. I can tell you I've confronted a lot of these issues. They're really hard. And uh, But uh, I think that uh, you want to, as a global company, serve uh, people around the world. And so you got to think how you're going to do that. Uh, but again, I would encourage people not to get involved in the political issues around the world, because I think that's a, a losing proposition or focus too much in any one particular market. Um, as far as, uh, you know, 
you're something of a, a leader in the uh, business ethics community. Can you, you, and you've been in business for a long time, I actually started the Department of Defense, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah. But you've been in, you've been in private business for a long time as well. Um, can you talk to me about how, at, at what point earlier in your career, earlier in your career did, like what you mentioned before, taking care of uh, your employees and things like that. I mean, that's, that's one example, taking care of your employees. I, I guess stakeholders is, is how we refer to it. And each one of the stakeholders has a different perspective on what's good and what's not. And you have to address all those issues. But what, at what point earlier in your early in your career did you kind of discover that that wasn't just about ethics, but also about, you know, productivity and profitability as well? Well, let's go back pre-business. I, I had the privilege of working for the Secretary of the Navy for a year, and I remember getting out on ships and seeing the magic that was going on. They're actually, Navy captains don't like to be in the Pentagon. They want to be out with their mm -hmm. people. And uh, that was a, a great learning experience. I remember being on the carrier uh, with 5,000 people operating. It was on its way to Vietnam in the high seas. I wasn't going to Vietnam. I was just there for a day. Just watching the high seas and how that worked. It was like a city all in unison. And it kind of shaped my thinking about leadership and how important it is to be out with your people. You know, you know a Navy captain, this captain of the ship, they're in charge. They don't leave the deck because they're responsible. On the other hand, they're totally dependent on all their people working together. And that kind of shaped my thinking about how business organizations ought to be. But the problem is some of these companies get so big that they don't really keep that going and get leaders and give them the authority. They're depending too much on consultants, middle managers, people setting controls. And I think we need to shift, and emerging leaders are going to do this, to much more of a people-centric environment. And uh, it seems obvious. Uh, but that's the only way, if you worry about sharing shareholder needs, the only way you're going to generate profitability, satisfy your customers, because the people on the front lines. Think about any business, you, any service organization you visit, whether it's a restaurant, an airline, uh, a rental car company, your whole experience is... Not with the CEO of that company, it's with the frontline people. Right. Do they care? They care about you. And if they don't care about you, I don't want to go there. You know, you can go to the nicest restaurant in the world. I don't want to go there if they don't care about me, you know? And uh, so I think that's the, that's why we need a whole new generation of leaders, because I think a lot of the baby boomers have gotten uh, kind of caught up with managing and not leading. And then I think, yeah, you have to bring your values and ethics into it. You have to have principles and you have to. Find a way to unite people around that. This is what we stand for. We're all going to work on this together. Yeah, these are tough issues, but we're going to be together on them and have a, a united, a, a, an aligned sense of purpose. And that's the key to being a great leader today. You have to align people around the purpose of your organization, who's called the mission at Medtronic, mm -hmm. and the values. And if you can do that, you'll have a powerhouse. And then you will create shareholder value and you can sustain it. But you look at people talking about quiet quitting, great resignation. I think these are all euphemisms. Say a lot of people, it's part of COVID, and are rethinking their lives and careers. Say, is this how I want to spend my life? And I would encourage them. If you don't like your work, find some you do love mm -hmm. because life is too short. Sure, yeah. I mean, in the military, we like to say that um, wars are won by sergeants, not by officers. Right? Yeah, right. So I had a lot of second lieutenants, I can tell you, and a lot of former uh, uh, Army captains, Marine captains, who came to my classes, I tell you, they were, to be honest, totally dependent on their sergeants, particularly mm -hmm. when they started out, you know, because that's the people who knew what was going on. See, but if you don't know how to depend on other people, you're going to be a terrible leader. You sure. know, and I think a lot of people said, 
you know, hey, I'm the smartest guy around here. Let me tell you what to do. I saw that actually happen. I was in when I was in defense department under Robert McNamara, who was Secretary of Defense. I don't think he ever went to Vietnam. They were kind of clueless about what was going on. And uh, you know, how can you run a company today if you're not on the front lines? If you got a retail store, you're not walking the store floors. I was on the board of Target. You know, the CEO used to walk well store floors a week. He'd just show up. He didn't come with an entourage. We're announcing it. No, he'd just show up and say, "Hey, what's going on here?" You know, and that's how you know what's going on in your organization. You got to be on the front lines today. I had to be out with, you know, people producing our products, our Medtronic, our base maker, defibrillators, and stents, and uh, and uh, with the innovators and with the people doing. It. And I saw 700 procedures when I was CEO of Medtronic, just gowning up, putting on the greens. I wasn't selling anyone anything, but I was learning what the problems were, what the challenges were, and how well we did. Sure. Uh, so, you know, from what I gather from what you're saying here is uh, top-level leadership isn't doing a great job in corporate America producing middle-level leadership that's of a high quality. And, and you know, that's um, – there's a lot of issues around that. I mean, it's like you hire somebody to uh, take over – a position and you expect them to do X, Y, and Z. But uh, one of my old first sergeants used to tell me, it's not what you expect that'll happen. It's what you inspect that'll happen. Right. So it's yeah. just being present sometimes, but there's also got to be some kind of formal leadership training. So in the absence of central leadership, you know, people know what to do and, and, and have, you know, quality checks and things like that to make sure things are going properly. How do you address that in a large company? Well, uh, we got way too many managers and enough leaders. We got too many people running spreadsheets and just looking at numbers and not realizing what's the reality. You got you said it. You said it. Be present. You have to. Are you present for your people? And you know, honestly, if people don't think you care about them, they're not going to give you all they got. They're not going to give you their hearts. You know, they may kind of minimally do the job, but they're not going to give you their hearts, and you're not going to get great results. But they only get that by being present, by caring about people, by being out there with them and realizing uh, what their needs are and responding to that. So all those little things that go into it's not, uh, you know, it's not some fancy uh, PowerPoint charts or consultant report or something that's going to give you the answer. You should be out there on the front line yourself. And I, it's not just middle management. It's top management got away from it. You know, our business schools are turning out millions of managers, but not very many leaders. And, you know, the military... Uh, they turn out that they have the best leadership schools there are, mm. you know, and a lot of that could be translated. A lot of it think of as command and control leadership. That's the way it was, you know, World War II. That's the way the old line. But we learned a lot since then. And you look at the kind of leadership it is depending on your people and inspiring them. You look at the kind of leaders we have mm. uh, that understand that very well. And so that's what we need to do in business is develop more emerging leaders. Because I think the baby boomers, say, are 60, are not going to change. I think you got to look to the younger leaders who understand the younger generation, what their needs are. Sure. Yeah. And it can be, um, it, it's not just about teaching people how to be managers. Even, uh, it's, it's no. also how you treat your employees and, and giving them purpose and some, some sense of upward mobility, right? The ability to progress within the company or use the company as a jumping off point for something else, but so, you know, have some kind of motivation. It can be difficult to quantify something like that and the impact it has. But yeah. uh, I think there's there's a really good example, and it's the difference between Walmart and Target, right? So Walmart <clears throat> notoriously has quite a few employees that are on government assistance, 
Uh, it's more difficult to get promoted there. Their managers make lower salaries, so on and so forth, uh, than Target. Target makes the average employee at Target. I'm sorry, hold on, let me rephrase that. So Target makes about $12,000 more per year per employee than Walmart does. And that might not sound like a lot, but when you have um, a lot. when you have a million employees, that's a lot of money. You know what I mean? And uh, that's twelve thousand million. And you, I'll let you do the math on that. That's twelve billion dollars. It's it's a lot of money, um, and it seems so obvious that that behaving that way from a business standpoint, uh, like Bill Foley at Fidelity Insurance, the way he ran his insurance company and provided all these employee benefits, he was one of the first guys to. Um, set up a pool of stock in the company for all the employees to have shares in and stuff like that. This all seems like really obvious stuff, right? So me as a sergeant in the, in the infantry, it's a tough job, a thankless job, but people, I have to have people show up and do that job because if they don't do it properly and, and with full effort, then people get hurt, you know? Um, so <clears throat> there's gotta be some motivation. And for a lot of these people, the motivation isn't necessarily just monetary or, or incentive stuff. It's how you're treated, but also like, are you developing me as a person so I can do more stuff later? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's uh, uh, something that's missing in the corporate world. I've worked in the corporate world a little bit. I didn't see much of that stuff, to be honest. It was mostly Bingo. just, what, I, what can I, I get out of right here? Yeah, this is what we need a new generation of leaders doing to help people develop. You know, my whole philosophy has been I'm going to spend as much time as I have working with people to help them reach their full potential. And so I need to understand their hopes and dreams and what they want to do and what they can do and where they, where they can be most effective and then help them find that right place. That's that's the job. OK, it's again, it's not uh, we have too many middle managers, Dan, and not enough people on the front line. And, yeah, the target example is a good one. I, like I said, I served on that board for 12 years. And they've been very much oriented that way, and they continue to be. Walmart's gotten a lot better, I will say, under mm. the, the current CEO. Sure. Uh, he's done a much better job. But, you know, I remember when COVID hit, those are the first two organizations to put money out for their employees. But only frontline. No supervisors, no managers, no executives, no CEOs. Frontline people put out $550 million at Walmart, $300 million targets, a little bit smaller, quite a bit smaller. Uh, but, you know, for the frontline people, we're way underpaying these people. Why shouldn't you be able to earn a great living there? And why not, uh, you know, create a, a place where they can advance into management or into leadership or whatever they want to do? And I think that's what leader, developing leaders is all about. They're, those are the ones that are leading. You don't, I used to tell MBAs, don't go into strategic planning. Don't do something where you're doing PowerPoint, Jerry. You're not going to learn how to lead there. Go run a little, run a production line, run a small sales force. You know, get out there and do it. Run a small engineering group, whatever it is, you know, just run a store. You don't have to run 10 stores, just run one. You'll understand. One of my students, a woman, outstanding, who was a Marine, she she goes to, she's going to McKinsey or PepsiCo. I said, mm -hmm. go to PepsiCo. You know what they made her do? Make her do. She drove a truck. She had to learn what a root driver's job was like. Right. You know, why not? Yeah, that's challenging job. She had to learn it firsthand, but she'd had a lot of experience in the Marines too, doing the same kind of thing. So I did find that a lot of people with that background became very good leaders because they, hey, they put their life on the line. It's not just about some money. You know, businesses people aren't putting their life on the line. It's just about money. Yep. So, uh, but people who've done that, they understand what matters. A hundred percent. And we have, um, 
actually next uh, Monday, a week from today, we're going to be at a charity golf tournament with uh, Rob O'Neill, the guy that killed Bin Laden. But he he has uh, a charity called Special Operators Transition uh, Foundation. And what they do is they take members of the special operations community that are getting out of the military and part, partner them with either education or corporate uh, uh, contacts so they can get uh, uh, jobs in the corporate world and management positions. Now they have a 97% higher rate and uh, 85% of their people get promoted within the first year. Right. So you can't find data like that in any other subset of, of people. Right. And it's, it isn't because they're necessarily extraordinary people. Oftentimes they're just ordinary people who've, who've done extraordinary things in that experience. You just can't account for that in regular life anywhere. It, It isn't, it isn't an insult to anybody else. It just is what it is, right? I mean, somebody who grew up doing something obviously is going to be better at it than somebody who just figured it out. Um, yeah. And I, I wonder how we can take an organization like that <clears throat> and not just place these people in positions of management throughout the corporate world, but also glean the lessons from them and make some kind of doctrine that makes sense that we can you know, maybe move back towards where you are at the business school and teach people not just how to understand business but understand human beings and what motivates them and things like that right all right let's do some ads right quick and we'll get back into it uh speaking of capitalism first and foremost blackriflecoffee.com get 20 percent off your first order with the code citizen black rifle coffee is my favorite coffee in the world uh for a lot of reasons one the coffee is a really high quality two i trust the company i mean i know the guys uh, uh, really well. We've known each other for years and I used to work there obviously, but, um, you know, I know I've seen the back end of this company. I know where the money goes, right? I mean, we've spent so much money on charity, uh, and it's been, you know, primarily towards military law enforcement, veterans, first responders and stuff like that. People who, you know, protect us, people who serve, the country. That's who we're looking out for. So, you know, <clears throat> that's not the only reason to buy coffee. Obviously, the coffee is also really good. It's not the, the only reason to buy any product. But it's certainly a benefit to know that the dollars you're spending are actually going to a noble cause. Now, if you want the most efficient way to drink your coffee, join the Black Rifle Coffee Club and get fresh roasted freedom delivered straight to your door. Get a premium coffee delivered every month. Choose your favorite roast, whether you like light, medium, dark, whatever. Uh, choose the grind, whether you want whole bean or ground coffee or coffee rounds that will work in a Keurig. And a delivery schedule, which I believe goes from anywhere from once every seven days to once every 60, right? There's a lot of stuff you can do here. Um, it's very flexible. It's built with you in mind. Members also get free shipping and access to exclusive partner discounts, including places like 511 and loophole and a bunch of others. Uh, so take the opportunity now, get 20% off your first order with the code citizen, go to blackriflecoffee.com. Next up, we got ghost bed. They still have this, um, 40% off ghost bed bundle where you get a mattress and an adjustable base and everything else you add to that order. Also 40% off for everything else, 30% off. If you use the code drinking bros at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. They have the best sheets, the best pillows, the best cases, 
Uh, they've got mattress toppers now. They've got weighted blankets. Uh, I hear a rumor there might be some dog beds coming pretty soon. But the good thing about Ghostbed, aside from the fact that they, just like Black Rifle, take care of the people who take care of us, all of their deals work with their $0 down, 0% financing plan that extends up to 60 months. That's five years, which means you can get 40% off your bedroom suite and pay for it over the course of five years. You're not going to find another deal like that, especially not with the quality product and the quality company that Ghostbed is. So go check it out at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. And last but not least, another company that takes seriously being ethical and taking care of people, right? Fume. Fume is one of my favorite products that exists right now because it's so, there's so many little pieces of science to go into it, right? So this is, you have to check this product out. It's a natural inhaler designed for better, safer, and uh, obviously a natural way to quit smoking cigarettes. It's not smoke. It's not vape, right? No nicotine replacement. It's just a replacement for the hand-to-mouth habit. But it isn't that simple. So it's a, it's a handcrafted wooden inhaler, and it uses cores infused with plant oils studied to curb cravings, right? Like peppermint, conquer. Uh, it's got mint uh, uh, to simulate menthol and stuff like that. They've got other flavors like cozy chai, which I really like, lemonberry bliss, which is a little bit sweeter if you're used to the vapes. Uh, all their flavors are 100% natural. There's no harmful chemicals. No artificial flavors, absolutely no nicotine, none of that bullshit. So if you're a current smoker, you know, or, or you're a past smoker that you're struggling with cravings now, or there's somebody that's close to you that smokes and you want to give them the opportunity to, to use something like this, you're not going to get anything better than fume. It replaces the hand-to-mouth habit, but it also, like I said, it's a confluence of a couple of different things. The hand-to-mouth habit is a huge psychological factor in trying to stop smoking. It's why a lot of people just can't get results with the gum or the pouches and stuff. Uh, and you may know somebody like that. And it combines that with plant oils that are naturally designed to curb cravings. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. And if you tried everything else and nothing's worked, I, I strongly urge you, we know exactly how dangerous smoking tobacco is. I highly encourage you stop that shit. You know what I mean? Or if you've got a friend or a family member that's smoking, try to get them on this fume. Try to get them on this stuff. And, you know, just for a better life, man. So whether you're a smoker or ex-smoker who struggles with cravings or somebody in your family or, or a friend group is, fume's a perfect tool for you. Head to breathefume.com slash citizen and use the promo code citizen to save 10% off your entire order. That's 10% off your entire order. When you head to breathefume.com slash citizen and use the code citizen, that's B-R-E-A-T-H-E-F-U-M dot com slash citizen. Well, that's why I wrote the book, Dan, mm-hmm. to try to get more people to do that and to rethink what it's all about. And because I think that's what you're describing is exactly what we need. And uh, that's why I think the whole concept of leadership needs to be rethought. People, uh, they're training the wrong things. Like I say, business school is turning out millions of managers and very few leaders. But you only learn to lead. Come on, tell me you learn how to fight a war or you learn how to lead a small organization uh, by reading a book. 
No, you can read all the books on war you want, but you know, when you get in there, that's that's when the rubber meets the road. You got to pick. It's the same thing true in business. And not again, you're not putting your life on the line, but you're running a store and you get it like just in today, Puerto Rico. You know, as a hurricane, you know, power's out. What are you gonna do? And you know, this is this is where that's where you need people to step up. And here's what I find: we're going through a lot of crises right now, multiple intersecting crises. But you find out who the real leaders are. They aren't the people with the titles. They're the people that step up and put themselves out there and say, look, we, we'll, we'll fix, we'll get after this. You know, I remember that horrible hurricane in Puerto Rico and, mm. uh, you know, Medtronic was sending planes down there full of food. But I tell you, people really stepped up and got places up and running. Hey, we want the factory running. We, we lost our homes. We have to live here at the factory, but we want to work. And, you know, there's that dedication. See, that's what's missing in a lot of organizations. It's just a job. And uh, <laughs> I hear this phrase, quiet quitting. I don't get this at all. Look, if you don't like your work, quit and go find something you can do. Someone said, well, you know, I can't afford to. Look, there's 11 million jobs out there. You figure out you only got one life to live. Mm-hmm. Go do it. What are you passionate about? What do you care about? What motivates you? And then what are the skills you have? They're unique. You don't have to be a genius. I found, Dan, the leaders that fail don't fail because they uh, because they aren't smart enough. I've never studied a leader who failed because he or she wasn't smart enough. They fail because they aren't grounded in their values and they aren't oriented towards how you build people. It's all about me. You know, it's, I want I want you to get me ahead. You know, I want you to get me that promotion. Sure. Yeah. I mean, what 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 did uh, Gandhi say that if you truly want to find yourself, lose yourself in the service of others? Now that sounds yeah. like a uh, a lofty, you know, a wishy-washy goal, but that that's something you can apply to everything you do in life. Because it, frankly, exactly. frankly, it's not about you. If you spend your life trying to accomplish goals simply for yourself, you're going to fail at everything you ever do. You may have successes along the way, but as you, you'll never reach your true potential behaving that way. And it's because the leadership is about it's about culture, discipline, and setting the example. Nobody's going to do. People grew up with this do what I say, not what I do bullshit from their parents a lot. And they're tired. When, once they become adults, they're like, no, nah, I'm not doing that anymore. People think, mm-hmm. people think leadership is like just giving orders or punishing the disobedient or rewarding the obedient, but that doesn't even scrape the surface of what it really is. Really, it's about there's a task or task to do. There's stress and pressure. Sometimes there's danger. And if people see you do it first, they'll follow you. That's, that's what it really is. And you know, if your manager is somebody who's assigning tasks and you don't see them and the trenches actually doing stuff, that nobody's actually going to follow that person. They'll follow them just enough to keep their job, and that's it, right? Yeah. One of the guys that I feature in my book is a young guy named Jonathan Lee Kelly. He has a series of kind of baked goods things. They're making baking goods for restaurants and all. He did some acquisitions, so uh, he does his acquisition. He, you know, he goes into the store first day he's in cleaning latrines and so why is he cleaning latrines he's cleaning latrines he says look if i'm asking you to do that dan i got to do it too Mm. i can't ask you to do something i wouldn't do it i feel very strongly about that don't ask people to do things you wouldn't do yourself and get out and do it you know figure out because that's where you learn what's going on that's why when i was at medtronic i saw all those procedures because i learned really what's going on the engineers can tell me how great a product is but hey the doctor can't save someone's life with it. There's not much of a product. So that's where you learn what's happening. And you learn some of the chaos that's going on. But you learn about people. 
And so the only way you learn how to lead is by is by doing it. You don't learn how to lead ever sitting in, in an office. Now, my buddy, uh, Andy Frisella, he owns First Form. I don't know if you've ever uh, heard of them, but they're in uh, St. Louis. It's a workout supplement company, more or less. But mm -hmm. um, that's kind of how he started his company. So they don't have – they have a very large facility. It's got to be like – 30,000 square feet maybe and I and, and I have to assume this is just their offices by the way and I and mm -hmm. I have to assume there's at least um I don't know I I I think he's got like a thousand employees or something like that and they don't mm -hmm. they don't have a janitorial staff at all everybody's expected to clean mm. up after themselves uh, really? they have a very large gym inside for for their athletes to come work out at for em employees can use it all they want as well but again for that there's no janitorial staff you make a mess you clean it up and, um, you know, he walks around routinely, um, looking for stuff that's dirty, not to catch anybody, but just to have everybody else see him cleaning it up. Cause if yeah. I'm the CEO, if I'm doing it, you damn sure better be doing it as well. It's kind of yeah. setting the standard, right? If you're not willing to do that, then don't take the leadership position. You know what I mean? That's just, it's really that simple. That's right. It is that simple. And we've lost sight of it because we've been told it's all about pleasing the stock market and buying back stock and on and on and on, you know, and uh, every time the recession hit last, the first thing we do is to cut out our leadership training, you know, and uh, improving our facilities and equipment. Yeah, it's all about the people. And uh, I don't know why this is not very, this is not rocket science. It's not like we have some new theories here. This is humanity. Yeah. This is humanity wherever you are in any, any walk of life, you know? Uh, but it's also not, it's not just about, um, it's so underpaying people and underserving your employees. It never works in the long run. Never. You always run into some kind of problems. And like you said, it's not something it's not rocket science and it's not something that's changed. Henry Ford figured this out, you know, over a hundred years ago. It doesn't, it doesn't benefit. It definitely wasn't just for altruism because he wasn't a particularly altruistic. No, man. he wasn't altruistic <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, uh, but he did it because he knew it was critical for his business and for the American economy for people to be in good spirits and have expendable income, right? That's the, that, that is a, a well-functioning business and it's a well-functioning economy. And the best way to do that is to pay your employees, right? And make sure that your products that you sell can be bought by your employees. That that's generally the, the math yep. that he worked out and you know, Ford's still around. They're doing pretty good. Well, I can say, you know, as, as a leader, uh, we are we are, we are not taking care of our frontline employees. We're not just paying them enough. We're not taking care of them, and they're the ones that make the difference in every single organization. You think of any walk of life. They the frontline is they're the ones who are going to make or break you. I can tell you, it's not the people in the C-suite. And so the people who are in the suite need to come up to that. Take Mary Bosch. She's CEO of General Motors. I tell you, she started on the production line at 18 years old. She didn't even go to college. Then they sent her on to uh, uh, General Motors Institute, now called Kettering. And then five, 10 years later, they sent her to business school. But what was important for Mary, and she's one of my former students, she's a first-line person. She's out with the people. She knows the challenges they face. And so I also have a hang-up, Dan. I'm getting off to your subject, but I'll come back. It's really, I think our education systems are gearing people the wrong way. There's a lot of people that can, are great with their hands. They can make, make great electricians. Uh, carpenters, computer geeks, uh, plumbers, 
uh, welders. You can make a good living doing that. Then you mm. can have your own electrical <laughs> business or electrical supply business. But we tell them they have to get a four-year degree. And I think we've diminished a lot of people by not really building up both vocational technical education. The Germans do that. They do actually a fantastic job. Mm. Why do you think a, a BMW is such a high-quality car? Because the people there really care and they're trained. And we're not giving them the training. We're just throwing them out. And sometimes we push out people and hire people that aren't trained. And so, and we aren't doing that. We should be, you yeah. know, that, and it's lifelong that you learn the latest skills. And maybe you want to be a computer graphics designer. Maybe you want to be a, a computer. I have a guy that works with me because he knows a heck of a lot more about computers than I do. And he'll take care of all our computers and service them. He's making a good living, you know? Mm. And why do we say he had to have a college degree, you know? Uh, I think what's important is that you have a real skill that you bring to people and then you can broaden it. and then you can, Frank, then become a teacher of other people. Sure. Yeah. How to do that. I mean, we're not going to run out of a need for engineers and plumbers and oh. uh, electricians. That's just not, I, I, I don't, we, we've got to be at least a hundred years away from robots doing all that stuff. So probably a good idea to invest in things like hey, that. When, when my, uh, Electrical system goes out, or the, the the boiler doesn't work. I'm not calling a robot, man. No. I, I need someone that knows what they're doing. I don't understand all that stuff. That's not my area of expertise. Mm. I need somebody that's really good at it. You know, when I want to design computer graphics for a new website, I don't. I can't do that. I need somebody that's really skilled. Mm. So those are all skills you learn. And uh, I think this is. I, anyway, I got off the subject. I'm sorry about that. No, it's but fine. I just, but I like the Germany example because they do. Uh, I, I don't think a lot of Americans under, uh, realize this, but Germany does uh, uh, primary and secondary education pretty well. So it's a three year high school and then it's a three year bachelor's degree as well. But they have trade schools and all this other stuff. And if you're uh, a German citizen, you don't pay for any of it. And, you know, oh, and they sit down with you when you're like 15 mm -hmm. and say, OK, take some tests. What do you really like to do? Dan, what do you like? What turns you on? What excites you? Well, I don't like sitting in a classroom, you know, taking notes, listening to somebody up there lecturing. Uh, here's what I love to do. Well, why not go do it? You know, and uh, if you know what you love at 15, you may love it at 55. Uh, so, but we need to find paths uh, for people up to the top. And Medtronic, we had a dual track for everyone. So you didn't have to be a manager to get ahead. Sure. Yeah. And you're, I mean, it's, I don't think it really is a tangent where, to bring up education here because it's a huge problem in our country for a lot of different reasons. One, all the weird shit they're trying to teach people, but that's, that is, uh, that's another conversation, but just the, uh, the economics of, uh, secondary education in this country are frankly completely fucked. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're saddling people who typically between the ages of 25 and 30 would be buying starter homes. Now we're saddling them with debt and there are no more starter homes to be bought. Right. No, sir, not. Oh, I tell you, it's, uh, I, but yeah. Tell me, here's my philosophy: mm -hmm. the strength of any country is built on the strength of its middle class. Mm -hmm. We've been pushing our middle class down to lower middle class, and uh, and by trying to quote cut costs. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for a couple three decades, we are looking at employees as a cost. Employees are not a cost; they're an asset. Yes, okay. Target pays more; it's a cost. No, it's an asset. I told one company with 300,000 people, look, I, I know you think you have great products and you do and great brands, but the value of this whole company walks out the door every night when they go home. Yep. And don't lose sight of that. They're the ones that make a difference. If you want to have a global company, you better have a lot of great Spanish employees. 
There's yeah, a lot of yeah, great, yeah. Uh, whatever, Italian employees. Yeah. You just don't ship over people from here to do it. So, you know, they have to really uh, know the business, know the people. Yeah, I think if, uh, you know, especially domestically, if you're a leader in the country, especially in business, I, the the most patriotic thing you could do is carry your principled stance into the business and make sure that everyone is taken care of, right? That's yeah. like you, We I, I tell this analogy in some of the, uh, when I give speeches from time to time about <clears throat> taking care of your workforce and stuff. And for the military, there's a pretty good analogy. It's you'll let your, you'll let your soldier or your worker or whomever it is grind themselves into dust and have problems at home or financial problems, or they, uh, uh, you know, want to move on to a new position or whatever it is. And it becomes unfeasible for them. And all of these things are representative of, uh, of something that needs maintenance, right? But you would never treat your weapon that way. You would never let your rifle rust or get uh, 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 have a broken part on it, right? Because yep. you, you, it's very obvious that you need that thing to function properly to do your job. Well, if you're a manager, your employees better be functioning properly. Otherwise, you, it doesn't matter how good of a manager you are. If your employees suck, then you're you're done. Yeah. So, you know, I remember going to Medtronic. I'd go down to the lunchroom, sit with a group of production workers. And, uh, you know, I just naive, you know, tell me, intentionally naive. Mm. How's the quality doing? Oh, Mr. George, we got a real problem. The equipment doesn't work. We can't turn on quality problems. This equipment doesn't work. It's hard to get someone to come in and maintain it. We don't have enough people to do that. So, okay, that's a real problem. It's not like somebody sitting up in the office looking at quality reports saying, what, are people not care about quality? No, you got to get down. What's the root cause of the problem? Don't try to fix something until you understand the root cause of the problem. It's like uh, Boeing 737 MAX. We had those two crashes. Hey, the engineers knew the problem. You know, and uh, but, you know, that somehow they didn't let it. It never got filtered up to the executive offices and they just kept marching along. So, uh, by the way, I saw the same thing in Defense Department. If you mm. know, no one knew. And I got more information from my high college buddies from Georgia Tech. They were second lieutenants and uh, about what was going on than I ever did, you know, looking up there. So that's right. That was my story. But that's true. I think in any walk of business. So let's just get and be with the people and do it. And I know this sounds simplistic to your listeners, but I think it's or sounds basic, but it is fundamental to building an organization. And uh, and by the way, that's how, if you're concerned about your shareholders, this is how you create long-term shareholder value. Not some of this phony stuff that has, goes up for a while and comes back down. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's been quite a bit of uh, nonsense over the past couple of years. Um, you know, some of it just sucks. Some of it, I think, was a little was some self-imposed nonsense, at least for the United States. Um, and now we're kind of digging our way out of it. I think uh, I, I don't know that we've reached the valley of this problem yet because we're so globalized as an economy now and we're so dependent on other people that it isn't just, well, we've got to get our economy back on track. That's that's how it was, you know, maybe in the 1930s during the Great Depression. But now it's, you know, there, there's a lot more going on there. Um, how do you see the next couple of months going with this stuff? I mean, next couple of months. Yeah. I mean, it, it, like six to 12 months. Let's say that. 
Well, we got we have a whole series of crises hitting us right now, mm. uh, and it's hard to know how it's all going to play out. You got nine percent inflation. You got uh, people can't hire the people they need. I don't know any company can get the people they want. You got eleven million open jobs. You got people quitting because they don't they don't feel like they're being well treated or they don't love their work. Uh, and you still have what I call this post-COVID effect. It's uh, you know the president said today, you know, COVID is over. Well, I hope so. But I can tell you the post-COVID impact on people is far from over. So we're trying to understand that. So getting through this is very challenging. Today, employees have agency. I say that's a good thing. They didn't before. Hey, when I got out of school, man, I just, just give me a job. You know, I just need a job and I'll do what I'm told. That's not true today. People have agency. And if you don't respect them and treat them well, they'll say, I'm out of here or, you know, they'll let you know. And so I think that's a good thing. But uh, things have really changed. So I think it's a little hard to see, even, you know, you can read as much as you want about what's going on in Ukraine, but that's a huge deal in many ways that we don't fully understand. I mean, if it's the breadbasket of the world in terms of wheat, uh, produce a lot of those rare materials you start out talking about, and uh, they have access to them, excuse me. And so uh, we'll see what happens. But that's... uh, it's a bigger deal than I think anyone thought. And so these things are all kind of interacting. Uh, and so this is what we need today are people that know how to lead in a crisis. If you've never led in a little crisis, you can't lead in a big one. Sure. And we're, we, we have too many senior people who are used to stable times. Uh, and it's not a stable time. It's very unstable. And that's where you see these leaders. Uh, you don't look for the titles. You look who's going to step up. Uh, yeah, we had the same issue in... Uh at the beginning of the global war on terror, because most of the, most of the, especially senior leadership, but most of the leadership in general had never really been in any kind of fight before. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, uh, you know, when in uh, Godfather, when Michael sends, uh, uh, what's his nuts, uh, Duvall's, Robert Duvall's character, I can't remember his name, sends mm-hmm. him away because he needs a wartime conciliary. It's kind of, similar to that. And it's always interesting to me to see who's going to step up and do this. But I feel like there's yeah. a lot of, uh, I feel like there's a lot of nihilism in the workforce now and, and, you know, people that don't see any purpose or, or any kind of like, they don't have any ownership and and the system, you know? Um, I don't blame people. I blame management for that. Sure. Uh, I think, uh, and I think again, we've got to get people who want to learn how to lead in a crisis, go lead in a crisis, you know? That's pretty straightforward stuff. And so uh, this nihilism workplace, because no one's out there that really understands what's going on. And we've been driving, I told you, driving the workforce down and promoting eventual managers, putting the money up there. And I think that's got to change. Sure. I mean, why do you think there's 11 million open jobs in the United States right now? Right. Well, I'm I'm, I'm asking you, I know that's part of it, but it's got to be just more than that. it's, It's certainly not like people, where's the money coming from for these people day to day? Well, that's another question. We had some, we had a lot of, we had a lot of subsidies for the last four or five, three, three years, excuse me. And, uh, but I think now they have to figure out, but I think people are saying, look, it's not just about the money. What kind of life do I want to have? Mm. And they're rethinking COVID. That's what I call the post COVID impact uh, that's causing people to rethink what I want to do with my life. But also part of it's because the people, particularly business, that's where people are being hired. Uh, are they haven't really understood why, how to motivate people. 
it's all about how you motivate people. And I think we've misunderstood that grossly. And certainly all the pressure for the last 30 years from the stock market has gone the wrong way on that. It's your time to make your earnings per share and you get a big bonus by laying off a thousand people. I think that's real bullshit. Sorry, my language. But, you know, I think we've got to, uh, you know, we've got to figure, get people to know how to motivate people. I mean, it's to me, it's very basic. Sure. I mean, you know, I, I just don't uh, we, we we transition from a production economy to uh, like info and service. Yeah. And I don't I, I think there's something about everybody working from home for so long that that had a big impact on the yep. expectation that workers have for things. I'm not entirely sure all of the worker expectations are feasible. Like there's got there's probably going to be some leveling of the playing field at some point, but it's not unlike what happened in the late 19th, early 20th century with the labor movement and stuff like that and improved working conditions. We're just running into a new version of it now. What do you think it is, aside from just better management, um, like the day-to-day -day employee? What, what, what is it that they're looking for exactly? I think today uh, they want to be treated fairly. They want to feel like they're working for a purpose. And they want to think somebody cares about them. People don't leave uh, companies. They leave bad managers who don't care about them. So I think it starts with that. And I think that's really critical that people start to understand that's what people want. I would flip the organization chart up upside down. I'd put the customers on top and then I have the employees, the front frontline employees. Like during COVID, I was sitting, you know, a lot of us are behind Zoom screens, teaching behind a Zoom screen, meeting behind Zoom screen. Hey, guess what? 60% of the people were out there on the front lines. Mm. The stock boys, the stock, stock people at Target or the barista at Starbucks or the person uh, working, like my son is a surgeon working, doing surgery. He's not doing that from home. These people are on the front lines. They're keeping us going. Somebody who's delivering goods to your home if you're afraid to go into the store and buy your own. These are the frontline people. They're putting their life on the line. Don't tell me that my son wasn't doing surgery on people that had COVID. You know, I mean, it's, that, that happens. And so they're the ones out there. So I think the greatest lesson we learned from COVID was the value of the frontline people. I really think it was. Now let's upgrade the compensation. Let's stop driving them now. Let's raise the compensation, pay them what they're worth. You mentioned education, school teachers. School teachers, problem in school teachers, school teachers aren't very well paid. But they got all these administrators. They got way too much bureaucracy and administrators calling the shop. You'd be far better off to get rid of 60, 70% of them, pay the teachers more. This is my philosophy. Why is that something that happens? It happens in business as well. But I feel like uh, anytime, anytime the government touches anything, uh, layers of bureaucracy start to form, almost like calluses. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's very bizarre. What? It's, it's like an amoeba being attacked. It forms a, a layer of protection yeah. around it with bureaucracy. Sorry to be a cynic, but it's true. You know, let's have a review. Let's form a commission. Mm -hmm. Let's go out and study this. But the purpose of government is uh, to make your life easier, right? To to make to to allow you to not have to focus on uh, co focus constantly on existential threats um, on. Yep. And infrastructure primarily, right? Those two things. You you, you want to be relatively safe, and you want to have the ability to move around and, and move your products around. That that's right. the purpose of government. Yeah. Um, but certainly not how government functions. You know what I mean? And it's not just one particular political party or another. I mean, the 
early 2000s, no, it, Republicans expanded the government lar- like faster than anybody in the history of the country. So do you see, uh, I, I know you don't like to get it inv- involved in the political side too much, but do you see, like, wh- wh- what kind of defense do we have against uh, uh, the government just getting larger and larger? You talked about uh, administrators in, uh, in, in education. I mean, it's like, I believe... Uh, uh, teacher salaries have risen like 27% relative to inflation over the last, which, which is not good enough, right? It's not close to, or 27% not relative to inflation, excuse me. And it's not good enough, but uh, administrator, like the total sum of administrator fees for universities have risen by like 2,700%, something like that, or 2,300%, yeah. excuse me. So yeah, like how do you fight against something like that? Of course, I'm a capitalist. I would say in those fields, education and healthcare, there is no P&L. Mm. So no one has to really look at where you're putting your money and what results. So the easiest thing to do is to put that layer, like you were saying, uh, form that layer of protection. And uh, in healthcare, for instance, the number of doctors, frontline doctors, over the last 30 years has gone up 40%, which is about the size of the population. Mm. Administrator has gone up 2,500%. Very, it's interesting how close that was the number you had, mm. you know, and so we're trying to create paperwork. It drives my both my son and daughter-in-law are doctors drives them nuts. All the paperwork they you know, they're sitting on vacation going to doing their paperwork, you know, and updating things. It's, it's so much material. You know, I mean, surgeons should be in the surgery suite, mm. you know, and uh, it, it's amazing all these layers. So, yeah, I think I'm very anti-bureaucracy. And I, and you see it in business too. So I'm just going to pick on the government. You see it in business as well. Sure. And uh, uh, I believe in capitalism, but we got to get capitalism with some boundaries around it, which is focused on the right thing. And that's why I wrote the book. Sure. Yeah. And what what do you see uh, from the business perspective? How do how does unnecessary bureaucracy form in business? Can you give me? Same way. It's, uh, oh, I'd like to get promoted, so I'm going to hire more people under me, and then we'll promote one of them under me, and then I can get promoted, and you create this. And so uh, I was with a guy that's running the largest insurance company in the world, 150,000 employees. He said, Bill, I took out, I came here, there are seven layers between me and the first-line person in this company. He said, we have three now. That's right. Take it out. You know, Just do it. And uh, then put the focus on the first-line people that are doing the work. You know? Uh, that, that's what you said Target did. Yeah, why not? I mean, isn't that where the action is? So whoever you consider the frontline people, I mean, they're frontline engineers, they're frontline mm. technicians, they're nurses, they're people in all walks of life. But that uh, we have too many management theories, like I said, too many managers and not enough uh, people really leading that know how to lead people. So there might be some relationship between uh, how far away from the front line a leader or a manager is and their sure. ability to effectively manage that. I mean, I know there's, so the span of control for those who don't know is the average person can manage three to five people and no more typically speaking. Uh, and, but that doesn't speak to the separate, that doesn't speak to the layers, right? I wonder if there's some um, like how far from maybe it's three, who knows maybe, but how far from the front line can a manager be and still be effective? Well, I think you should be able to manage, 15 to 20 people. Mm. I think you want to have flatter organizations and that keeps you close to do the math of a large organization, do the math and you're going to get you a lot closer to the front line. 
So, uh, and I think the farther you are, the more isolated you are. Mm. And that's a risk. And so I fought that when I was at Medtronic just by being out there myself all the time. And uh, the guy working for me was a vice chairman. He was a bureaucracy fighter. He was, he hated bureaucracy. He would go around and take it out. But I, I think you do have to do that. You have to look at how we're making life more difficult for frontline people. One of the guys interviewed my bank uh, book is uh, Richard Davis, who's head of the, one of the most successful banks in the country. But he goes out and talks to the tellers. He finds out what's going on. And, he, you know, that's, again, that's what, that's what they should be doing. He just shows up at a branch and talks to the tellers and sees what's happening. I know it sounds mundane, mm-hmm. but, uh, no, just get out and do it. And, uh, but you got to be there. And uh, you can't let yourself be cycled by that. Bureaucracy wants to protect you, wants to keep you from the real world. And that's what I, I saw that happening. In the, it was a great learning experience when I was in the defense department during Vietnam. That's, you know, everyone has got all these theories and they aren't, they don't necessarily have anything to do with reality on the ground. Sure. Yeah. And it doesn't, you're not doing anybody any favors by shielding them from reality. That's, uh, you know, whether you're a parent of a young child or a manager of, a, of an adult human being, it's just shielding people from the reality of the world isn't, that's not a very effective strategy anywhere to be. So Dan, I used to, when I came to Medtronic, I was new there and I said, <clears throat> you're never going to get fired here by making a mistake, mm. but you will get fired for covering one up. Mm. And integrity is not the absence of lying. We need to have the whole story mm. because if once we know what the whole problem is, you get to the root cause We can get the best people in the company, best people from outside the company if we need to, to solve this problem. But if we don't know what's going on, I'm not clairvoyant. I can't know what's going on. So let's not engineers may say, oh, that's not really a problem with the product. The doctor implanted it wrong. No, 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 no. You cut the whole thing wrong. If it didn't work, it didn't work. Let's just face the reality and get on with it. Say we have to recall that product. All right. I don't want to pivot for a sec. So you've served on the board of... Uh, the World Economic Forum USA. Can you tell me about like it? The WF is not very popular amongst most of the yeah. people I know. Uh, can you tell me like from your perspective why it's a useful organization, or if you think that I don't know what you think. Well, it's mostly to bring people together to focus on real issues mm. and talk about them and talk about solutions, and I think that's important. So it provided a good forum to do that. Mm. So. And do you have anything to say? Like a lot of people are super anti-globalist uh, in the U.S. for a lot of reasons. One, because of some of the inefficiencies, having to rely on China and Taiwan, having to rely on Russia, uh, you know, for for raw materials, for wheat and things like that. Uh, but I, I, I'm not sure that the Monroe Doctrine is a good idea either, just being isolationist, even though we were technically like a, uh, America, the hegemon of the Americas at the time. But um, can you maybe defend whatever level of globalism that you're comfortable with. I know that's like a, uh, it, no, no, I, I am a globalist. I believe we got to find a way to work together. I'd rather, frankly, I'd rather trade with China than go to war. Right. And, uh, you know, and some of them, I've kind of given up on some of the leaders in the world that I don't think you can work with. So I'm not trying, but, uh, I think, uh, you know, we create jobs. If we do this, well, we create Medtronic for instance, went from, mostly domestic to much more global, uh, more than half global. And I can tell you created a heck of a lot of jobs in the United States. And most of the production was here. All the technology was held here. Mm. Maybe you call me a wimp, but I didn't want to take a risk on people copying our technology. So I kept very tight control of it. So when we set up in China, 
we weren't giving him any technology. Now there's pressure to do that. But uh, I can tell you, we kept pretty very tight control over what for us was the essential element was the innovation mm. and, the, and the technology. And uh, that that was the keys of the kingdom for us. And so I think you'd look at that. But uh, no, by being global, we created a heck of a lot of good jobs, high paying jobs. Too. Sure. So uh, well paying jobs. Uh, I, I think they'll buy. But, you know, for a company like Medtronic, you know, cheap wages don't work. We didn't have any factories. Sure, in Mexico. Yeah. You know, yeah. we, what was, you know, going low, it wasn't the wages, about, it was all about quality. Mm. <clears throat> I think by, uh, I, I agree with you, by the way, that we have to work with other countries. That's That seems very obvious. Um, and, you know, there's good and bad examples. I think so the, the manufacturing in China, um, the working conditions and wages have improved dramatically over the past 25 years because of pressure from the West. I see that as uh, a, a net positive, obviously. The, so you can say the same thing in some regards in other places in, in, in Asia and even in the Middle East. But <clears throat> um, I think when people here are uh, against globalism, it isn't about working with our partners. It's about allowing forces outside of the United States to have any kind of control over what happens in the United States. I think that's what people are sure. worried about. Right. And I think that's, you know, what, years that's ago, what you were worried about, like by keeping your intellectual property sure. to yourself. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> years ago, we were it was the Japanese who were worried about. Mm. I went over there all the time. And of course, their wage levels went up very high. Mm. So they had to go somewhere else to produce China or Vietnam or Indonesia or somewhere. Uh, but, you know, you don't do well by going to Bangladesh and having a sweatshop. Mm. Not if you're trying to produce a quality product. Right. You know, you're not going to win that game. And so I, I, I don't respect people that do that. Uh, I felt in Medtronic, everyone should be well paid. We gave everyone health care. Mm -hmm. Everyone had a uh, opportunity to do Medtronic stock uh, to build up a nest egg. It's called, you know, supplement to their mm -hmm. retirement. We had their retirement plan too. In fact, you know, when they, when we turned, we had an anniversary and we gave everyone 100 shares of stock, which was worth about $7,500. They were all shocked that we did that. Now we put it in an ESOP, so they couldn't just take it out anytime right. they wanted and spend it. But they, it was building up for their retirement. Sure. And so when they retired, they got all that money, and it built up. Of course, stock went up, so it got to be yeah. worth a lot more. But the important thing is you're taking care of your people, right? And everyone. And you know, why would you want an unhealthy workforce? You know, why do you want people to come to work sick? You want people to be healthy. Mm -hmm. You can't do your job unless you are. And so I thought that was very important to right. a healthcare company. And do you feel any, uh, as, as I guess did rather did, uh, as a business leader like that, that works in the global market a lot, how, how do you, how do you take the welfare of the United States into consideration when you're doing stuff like, well, I mean, the United States as a whole into consideration when you're making certain deals, does that come up in the boardroom and stuff? Like if we make this deal, it kind of weakens our position in here or there, and you just kind of stay sure. away from the politics entirely. Sure. No, no. We, we felt by creating a global company that could dominate the globe, uh, we were helping. You know, I mean, the companies that do that have helped the country a lot. You don't want to become too dependent. Right now, everyone's dependent on Taiwan for mm -hmm. semiconductor. It's just a reality. Taiwan semiconductor company. Uh, that's not a healthy situation. And so we felt by creating a global leading company. I don't like it when under the old management of General Motors, they lost a tremendous amount of share because they didn't produce best design, best quality that was competitive, you know? And so that didn't make me happy. You know, I think we have to, our companies have to be very competitive. 
and they can become much more competitive by the things you and I are talking about. To, and that's how they're going to become competitive, you know? Yeah. So, so from your position, the correct strategy for business leaders in America is to uh, try to, you know, dominate markets through quality and, and, you know, smart business moves. So people, yeah. other countries have to come to us for them is, is, yeah. Let me tell you the reality is, you know, awful lot of people do business in China on mm -hmm. bribes, same in India. Okay. A lot of countries, same in Russia, for sure. We said, we don't do that. Look, anyone, anyone got caught anywhere close to that, even making, Oh, we'll take a doctor out to do this out on a boat. No, no. They, we were very clear about that. We're going to sell our technology our service and our reputation. Mm. And that's what we have to build up. And uh, that there's no deviation. They said, well, we're losing contracts. I said, you look, you get back there and sell technology to the doctors, quality of products uh, that no one else can offer. That's what you sell. Yeah. If you're going to pay more for value, fine. It's the way it is. Mm. And I'm not trying to compete with the low-end Chinese manufacturers. I can tell you when I was CEO, and I don't think the company is today, you know, we're going to compete on quality and service. And, uh, yeah, I'm not know, sure somebody wants a low end, low cost pacemaker. <laughs> no, know? no. You know, if, if you had to put one in your mother, Dan, would you, uh, you know, take one that's 30 percent less? It may not work. Yeah, for sure. It doesn't save her life when the defibrillator needs to go off. So, yeah. Well, this has been great. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, you're, you know, one of the uh, foremost business leaders over the past, you know, 30 or 40 years in the country. Um, you got a book out. It's, it's, uh, doing well. I hear just from, yeah, very, very well. Thank goodness. I, again, <laughs> I hope a lot of young readers will lead it. It's, sure. it's the emerging leader edition of true mm -hmm. North. So, uh, that's who I'm focusing it on. So this is uh, a second, almost a second edition, but geared towards younger people that are going to become the next yeah. generation of managers. That yeah. And we interviewed all new people, mm -hmm. emerging leaders and a lot of forerunners of, how they, the kind of subjects we're talking about. So sure. I think you'll find a lot of people with very interesting insights. And I assume it's uh, it's everywhere you can buy books, right? Yep, yep. The yep. easiest way is you can get it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. But sure. Any way you want to get it, any right. stores. Well, Cole, I appreciate you uh, coming on the show today and discussing all this stuff. A lot of people are super interested about the economy, about business, about leadership and management, things like that. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience before we get out of here? I think we've talked about it. Thank you for having me on your show. It's Absolutely. terrific. Thanks yeah. for all the great questions you asked. Yes, sir. I appreciate you coming on today. Uh, thank you for joining and thank you all for watching. This has been Citizen. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.